Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshek, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. Just days ago, in New Hampshire, State Representative Alicia Lekas introduced a new teacher's loyalty bill, which she hopes to pass in the 2022 legislative session. The text of HB 1255, which updates a mid-20th century law sparked by Cold War anxiety about sedition, explicitly prohibits New Hampshire public school teachers from advocating communism, socialism, or Marxism as a political doctrine, or any other doctrine or theory which includes the overthrow by force of the government of the United States. While the justification for this prohibition might seem fairly straightforward, if overstated and anachronistic, from a patriot's perspective, much media attention has focused on the document's second paragraph. There, Lekas and her co-sponsors disallow any doctrine or theory promoting a negative account or representation of the founding and history of the United States of America. Such prohibition, they state, includes but is not limited to teaching that the United States was founded on racism. The proposed New Hampshire bill is the latest salvo in a continuing series of confrontations over anti-racist pedagogy in American classrooms. Unsurprisingly, many scholars and educators invested in challenging racism through their teaching were left chilled by the proposed legislation's implications. As with other disputes about anti-racist pedagogy over the past year and a half, the New Hampshire controversy invites questions about conceptual clarity and precision in language. The antagonism against reckoning with racism in public classrooms has repeatedly circled around the moral implications of teaching students about the country's history with an eye to racism's relationship to American progress. Presumably, The legislative logic here is that to suggest that the United States was founded on racism is to defame the sanctity of the American democratic project in a manner that might open the door for students to denounce their allegiance to the flag. But how could one talk honestly about the nation's formation without acknowledging the centrality of race-based slavery to its economic and political emergence? Who gets to define here what the racism mentioned in the bill's potential prohibitions means exactly? As we continue to work through the parameters of anti-racism across the academic disciplines here at the Humanities Center this year, I wonder if a turn to philosophy might prove useful. Philosophy, after all, interrogates knowledge and values from the atomic level, questioning terms, contemplating premises. Would it help to work towards some consensus about racism as an idea? Can we define irrefutably what pedagogical acts and premises correspond with HB 1255's imagined threat? On the other hand, even the assistance humanity scholarship might provide for easing us out of this taxonomic muddiness is limited. The philosopher Charles Mills, who passed away earlier this fall, begins his influential late 1990s study, The Racial Contract, by articulating an awareness of this limitation. 
A standard undergraduate philosophy course, Mills writes, will start off with Plato and Aristotle, perhaps say something about Augustine, Aquinas, and Machiavelli, move on to Hobbes, Locke, Mill, and Marx, and then wind up with Rawls and Nozick. It will introduce you to notions of aristocracy, democracy, absolutism, liberalism, representative government, socialism, welfare capitalism, and libertarianism. But though it covers more than 2,000 years of Western political thought and runs the ostensible gamut of political systems, there will be no mention of the basic political system that has shaped the world for the past several hundred years. And this omission is not accidental. Rather, it reflects the fact that standard textbooks and courses have for the most part been written and designed by whites, who take their racial privilege so much for granted that they do not even see it as political, as a form of domination. As Mills suggests in response, we must redirect our vision to the ubiquity of white supremacy, ultimately to see what, with regard to race and racism, has been there all along. On today's show, we speak with Dr. Sebastian Ramirez, who is the Humanities Center's 2021-2022 postdoctoral fellow in the humanities. Sebastian is a philosopher whose research moves from Mills and builds on the earlier arguments of W.E.B. Du Bois. In my conversation with Dr. Ramirez, we will hear how the work he's doing at the center this year proposes ways past the familiar pitfalls of discussing white supremacy. As Sebastian tells us, it's never too late for conceptual clarity and historical accuracy as we work to imagine more just ways of being. All of this after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanity Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanity Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. Sebastian, thank you for sitting down and talking with me today. Um, you are a key component in the Humanities Center's anti-racism theme this year. And so I'm really grateful for your giving our listeners a chance to hear about your research uh, and all the work that you do. Um, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your academic background and what led you to the work that you did in your doctoral studies and for your dissertation. Sure. First, I'd just like to thank you, Mike, for having me on the podcast. I think it's great what you're doing with the Humanity Center and the Humanity Center podcast, and I'm happy to uh, play some small role in that. 
So I graduated with a PhD in philosophy from Vanderbilt University uh, this past August, just a few months ago. And my areas of specialization are social and political philosophy and critical philosophy of race. My primary research question right now is how do we think about white supremacy as a double-edged sword? That is a socio-political system that has simultaneously benefited and harmed many white people throughout U.S. history. So my dissertation draws primarily on W.E.B. Du Bois to look at the economic dimension of this problem. I focus in particular on Du Bois's mid-20th century writings, especially Black Reconstruction, and drawing from those writings and sort of gathering various remarks that he makes across the mid-20th century writings um, and extrapolating from them a bit, I argue that white supremacist culture has often served many white people as an action-guiding framework for interpreting and coping with economic domination. So relying on white supremacist culture in particular narratives regarding the supposed inherent inferiority of people of color. Many white people, white working class people in particular, have been able to secure some degree of social mobility and security within our capitalist system at the expense of people of color. So that's the white privilege side of the coin or of the sword, if you want. The other side of it, however, is the, the intensification of economic domination with widespread negative social consequences, in particular, uh, widespread suffering and death inflicted on many white people as well as people of color um, as a consequence of this attempt to cope with economic domination. So that's the general argument or idea I uh, develop in the dissertation. Um, and as to your question about what led to this work, that's a good question. Um, one major factor here was the Trump presidency. So I essentially went to grad school during the Trump years. I started my first semester was in the fall of 2015. That was a few months after Trump announced his presidential campaign. That semester, I took a seminar on Marx and two seminars on race and racism. And I was reading the Marx and reading Du Bois and Charles Mills and Michel Foucault with the Trump campaign in the background. And, you know, in between uh, seminar sessions and during seminar breaks, we would be talking about Trump and, you know, we would come back and we would continue our discussions of Marx and Du Bois and Mills and so on. Uh, the second year, the beginning of my second year at Vanderbilt, the fall of 2016, Trump won that presidential election right in November. Um, and that semester, I was taking a seminar on Du Bois and auditing one on Adorno. So I had been continuing my readings of, uh, let's say, critical theories of capitalism on the one hand and critical theories of race and racism on the other. And throughout the seminars throughout that year, I started to wonder about how these two social systems, if you want, capitalism and white supremacy, are connected. And the Trump campaign and his eventual victory in that presidential election reinforced that question for me. You know, what's the relationship between race and class, uh, to put it simply? Um, and in particular, 
the popular media debates that sprung up after Trump won that election, where people were arguing whether race or class, racial anxiety or economic anxiety uh, played the major role in his election victory, reinforced the question for me, where for me, you know, both are necessary components of any serious explanation of Trump's election victory in 2016, but right-wing white identity politics in the United States more broadly, right? Where Trump's election victory was in large part a response to the Obama presidency and the way in which a black president shook assumptions about the hegemonic position of white people and white men in particular, right, within American society. That was a major factor, but Trump was also a response to the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, and the housing crisis and so on. And so I wanted to think about race and class together, in particular in light of the Trump presidency. And uh, to make a long story short, I eventually decided on W.E.B. Du Bois as a figure to focus on for the purposes of the dissertation. Uh, in part because he's being taken up in the philosophy literature much more recently within the past few years. And so there's an opportunity for me to contribute to that discussion. Uh, and then another reason for my decision to focus on Du Bois is the fact that he has one of the, if not the most systematic and sustained dialectical analysis of race and class, white supremacy and capitalism in the United States. And I think there's really a lot to work with, many resources that uh, he has offered that uh, we in philosophy, certainly, and I would argue across the disciplines, um, have yet to fully develop or, or engage. Um, so I, I, yeah, I decided on Du Bois as, as my figure here to think about race and class in light of the Trump presidency. That's sort of the, a little bit of the, the genealogy of the project. Let's talk a little bit about Du Bois for a second. Um, you know, so many readers and I imagine so many listeners of this podcast are familiar of Du Bois, particularly through the souls of black folk um, and maybe even more specifically through um, the first chapter of that book and, and the discussion of double consciousness. Um, can you speak about why black reconstruction is so central to the way that you talk about race and class um, in your writing? So one reason is that in that text, Du Bois was centrally focused in part on what has come to be called white backlash. So this idea that after a period of relative political and economic gains for people of color and especially black, black people, um, white people or a significant fraction of the white population respond very negatively to that. And they uh, attempt to reinscribe previous cultural domination, if you want, the previous cultural domination that was challenged by uh, these periods of relative political and economic gains, right? So the Obama presidency is a concrete example of that, a significant uh, cultural gain in particular, if not a political and economic gain for people of color and especially black people, right? Followed by 
uh, the Trump presidency. We also have the civil rights movement and the social movements of the 1960s, leading in part to the rise of neoconservatism and neoliberalism and the idea of colorblindness and so on as a form of a white backlash. So Du Bois was centrally focused on the form that quote-unquote white backlash took in the late 19th century after the Civil War and the Reconstruction period, where the Civil War essentially ended with the federal government establishing a military dictatorship in the South to enforce the formal abolition of slavery. And there was a moment there where the federal government supported the Freedmen's Bureau, which was uh, essentially uh, an institution or a series or set of institutions, excuse me, through which the federal government attempted to reconstruct the South and provide opportunities for recently enslaved black people and also many poor white people in the South. And so it was an early attempt to establish a welfare state, if you want, in the South in, 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 in the wake of uh, chattel slavery. Um, and so that reconstruction period was followed by a period that's come to be known as redemption, right, which is another form of again, what we today often call white backlash, where essentially after this period of reconstruction and the possibility of an interracial labor movement transforming uh, the country and establishing a multiracial democracy, we have Jim Crow and lynchings and the emergence of the prison industrial complex. And so Du Bois is looking at this period of white backlash and attempting to understand how it happened. How is it that this possibility, this possibility of a multiracial democracy, of a truly humanist interracial solidarity, how was it that that was overthrown by a, white, by a form of white backlash? And so in general, that text is important because of the way in which Du Bois attempts to understand white backlash in a very concrete, historically specific ways. Um, and that another aspect of that text that I think tends to be underappreciated is the way in which Du Bois was focused on what we might call something like the paradox of poor white support for white supremacy, where Du Bois says that poor white Southerners were also oppressed by the system of chattel slavery. It offered some of them some opportunities for social mobility in the form of working as slave drivers um, or part of the, the, uh, the police forces that would track down escaped or enslaved people who attempt to flee the plantations, right? So it offered some poor white people some opportunities for social mobility. But on the whole, Du Bois says – the system of chattel slavery and the Confederate elites oppressed poor white people. He even says, at some points, I think probably being rhetorically dramatic, he says, equally 
equally with enslaved black people. That, in other words, poor white people were subject to abject poverty and cultural marginalization and so on, lack of education, etc. And so one of Du Bois's questions in that text is, how is it then that poor white people, when presented with this opportunity to participate in the construction of a multiracial democracy, how is it that they end up supporting Confederate elites um, and then after the war, they end up, many end up supporting uh, the consolidation and emergence of Jim Crow, the Jim Crow system, denying or turning away from this opportunity for multiracial democracy. So Black Reconstruction in America is important for me because of the way in which Du Bois looks at this question of white backlash or white negative white reactions to relative political and economic gains on the part of people of color. And then because of the way in which Du Bois looks at this, this, this paradox of poor white support for white supremacy, let's call it, which comes up for me in the Trump presidency to a certain degree. We can talk more about some of the differences and so on, if you like, but that's generally um, why I think black reconstruction is so important. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about this, and the legacy of this historical period you just uh, spoke with us about in the way that Du Bois frames his revisiting of that historical period. Um, if we, you know, move in the other direction temporally and think about, you know, the, the 21st century context that you said was the impetus for a lot of the work you're doing, you know, thinking through the sort of volatile context of the, of the Trump presidential years, um, what are some of the ways that the work that you're doing, which is framed by Du Bois's perspective on history, how does it challenge common ways that we think about whiteness or white identity or white supremacy? One of the ways I think it challenges um, some common ways of talking about whiteness or white supremacy, and in particular white backlash, is that this broadly Du Boisian perspective highlights the complex relationship between race and racism, racial domination, and class and class domination. So to speak more concretely, right, when we talk about the Trump presidency, I mentioned this debate as to whether race, racial, racial anxiety, or class economic anxiety contributed most to his presidency. And one of the limitations of that debate is, of course, the false dichotomy that it must be one or the other. But another limitation is a narrow understanding of the economic dimension of white identity politics, authoritarian populism, if you want, right, where some of the popular media commentators that I've seen that have dismissed uh, the economic dimension of Trump support have tended to think about the economic dimension fairly narrowly in terms of income or salary or education. So the idea has been Trump supporters, if you look at their income, people who voted for Trump were actually fairly well off. They were their average income, if I remember correctly from a couple of the recent articles, 
that looked at this question, their average income was somewhere around seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year, right? So you might look at that and say, well, they're they're fairly well off, and so economic anxiety must not be playing much of a role in their support for white identity politics, right? But what a Du Boisian perspective encourages us to do is to think more broadly about the economic dimension of white identity politics, and in particular to think about the way in which the important issue is not so much relative income, but the fact of being subjected to economic domination and the really significant lack of control that most people have over their lives as a result of the ways in which economic elites make so many of the decisions that determine the production, distribution, and consumption of resources and services in this country. Right? We live in an oligarchy, and that's the conclusion of a Princeton, a study by Princeton uh, economic historians, I believe, right, is that we live in an oligarchy and uh, a small number of people make decisions that determine really how many people spend their lives and economic domination takes place in the workplace as well, right? Where employers have the decision to hire and fire at will and so on. Um, it t- you know, economic domination plays a, a significant role in various different aspects of life in the United States. And, and I, I would recommend uh, the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson's book, um, on this subject. The name, the title of the book is escaping me at the moment, but she has a book on economic domination at the workplace. And it's really helpful for thinking about this. Um, but the Du Boisian perspective then points us towards the role that economic domination plays in white identity politics. And the fact that because economic domination is so severe um, in this country under let's say, late capitalism, uh, people need to find ways to regain some sense of personal control over their lives in the face of that economic domination. And one way they do that is by shoring up their identifications with an in-group and opposing an out-group and attempting to work together with other members of the in-group to shore up what they take to be their group interests. Um, And so this is playing a role, I would argue, in uh, the resurgence of white identity politics. If we just look at, for example, the uh, worsening income and wealth inequality in this country as sort of a proxy for worsening economic domination, right, or the intensification of economic domination in recent years, and especially since the Great Recession, and even more so uh, during this ongoing pandemic, right? Economic domination is getting worse. And when that happens, people seek out ways of coping with that economic domination. And in this country and really throughout the world, because of modern history and the way that it has unfolded, one of the ways that people do that is through white identity politics and this reliance on increasingly extreme forms of it. Can we talk about the discipline that you work out of? Um, because in, in, you know, narrating the ideas that inform your work and the development of your work, 
I mean, you've spoken about history, you've spoken about economics, you've spoken, you know, about politics, um, but you are a trained philosopher uh, and working out of a philosophy department and informed by the work of someone who is professionally trained as a sociologist. So what is what is uh, philosophy's importance here in thinking about race and racism and, and how is philosophy key, I guess, to to anti-racism? Right, right. That's a good question. And it's a difficult question. You know, honestly, it's one that I struggle with, uh, in part because one of the things about philosophy is that the question of what philosophy is, is often at play, at least for many philosophers. Some some philosophers aren't into the the metaphilosophical question, right, of what philosophy is. Um, but many are, and I am, and I'm so so I'm constantly sort of, you know, thinking about this question. What is it that I'm doing as a philosopher um, relative to what, say, historians or sociologists do? Um, and one idea that I've come to recently is that philosophers work with concepts. Historians work with archives, right? This is oversimplification, right? But generally speaking, right, historians work with archives. Sociologists work with interview and survey data. Philosophers work with concepts. So one way to think about what philosophy or philosophers do is to say that we clarify criticize and innovate concepts that in this context can help us understand the persistence of racism and identify strategies for uh, enacting anti-racist social change. So one example of that is Charles Mills, a significant influence on my work, who developed the concept of white ignorance, which I think will be familiar to uh, many listeners, that concept has been quite widely influential, right? And so the basic idea is that one of the reasons that systemic racism or – Charles Mills preferred the term white supremacy. One of the reasons that white supremacy persists is that there is a, a widely held deep-seated ignorance about the history of chattel slavery and Jim Crow segregation in the United States – and the contemporary legacies of those institutions. And Mills emphasized that this ignorance is rooted not so much in a lack of information or a lack of education as in a deep-seated desire to protect real or perceived group interests. So this concept, I would suggest this concept of white ignorance then helps us understand why education alone isn't enough to combat racism. And we can see that today because in particular with uh, the idea of white privilege, right? The idea of white privilege now is everywhere. There's a Netflix special on it. There are conferences on white privilege, various diversity trainings and focus on white privilege and so on. And the 1619 Project discussed the history of chattel slavery and its co contemporary impacts and so on, right? And so information about white privilege and white supremacy and the history of systemic racism in this country is very widespread. But we have this increasingly extreme white 
reaction, white identity politics with right the Trump presidency, but then also various vigilantes, white vigilantes and uh, white militias around the country marching on Washington and so on, right? So what's happening here? Well, it's, again, the concept of white ignorance points us to the fact that it's not just a problem of a lack of information or a lack of education. There's this problem of the desire to protect real or perceived group interests. So that's a significant obstacle to anti-racist social change and organizing efforts, right? On the other hand, that concept, white ignorance, points us towards alternative strategies to combating racism and white supremacy, right? And in particular, uh, an interest convergence strategy, where if part of the problem is that many white people refuse to support anti-racist social change because they believe that that change threatens their real or perceived group interests, then a more effective strategy of anti-racism perhaps can make the argument that, in fact, many white people would benefit from anti-racist social change. We've, we've been talking about the benefits of philosophy. You were speaking about the benefits of philosophy as a discipline for framing your work. What about the limitations of philosophy? And in, in particular, I guess I'm thinking about how all this year, the Humanities Center is considering um, the embeddedness of racism within different academic disciplines. And this is one of, you know, the sort of uh, topics of, of contemplation for us all year. And so what do you do with, you know, the history of racist ideas articulated through the most influential continental philosophers who define the discipline? You know, I think of Kant or of Hume? I mean, what? how do you sort of reconcile that history with um, the, the way that you're working in philosophy? Right. That's a good question. So I am not primarily a, a historian, a philosopher, or a historian of philosophy. So in a way that, right, that's an important question, but it's not one that figures centrally in my work. It does figure however, into, for example, my teaching of philosophy, right? So when I teach Introduction to Philosophy courses, I generally teach them as histories of philosophy. And when I do that, I teach the canonical white European men. I teach, right, Kant and John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and so on. Um, and so how do you deal with the fact that the canonical European white men who are so often taught, and rightfully so, right? I don't want to dismiss Kant or Locke or Hobbes, right, and suggest that they have nothing important to say. But how do you teach them uh, recognizing the fact that they espoused white supremacist views, right? And I think the only way to do that is to teach those texts and to be open about it and to say that, John Locke, for example, uh, supported the South Carolina colony when it was uh, emerging and uh, you know thriving as a, a, a major site of chattel slavery, right? And to, to read John Locke's discussions of indigenous peoples in the United States and so on, and to really explore what is his reasoning here when he talks about 
uh, North America as a wasteland, right? And what is he assuming? And so on. Um, so I think there's no avoiding it. I think the only way to approach the history of philosophy is directly and to say, you know, these are the texts that uh, demonstrate a complex amalgam of ideas, some of which are ultimately white supremacist. And then in terms of more of the contemporary discipline, I think here I uh, defer to Charles Mills again, who has focused more directly on liberal political philosophy and what he calls the whiteness of political philosophy. And he he argued uh, for many years that political philosophers have failed to take the problem of racial justice seriously. Um, and he offered various explanations for that, some of which have to do with uh, the ways in which philosophers often think of philosophy as concerned with only the most abstract and general questions. What is the meaning of life? Where does it all come from? And so on. And so part of what Mills tried to do and um, what I try to do sort of under his influence is to maybe challenge our conception of what philosophy is or can do. Since you've mentioned Mills uh, a few times now as such an influence on your thinking, um, if you were going to recommend a starting place for our listeners to read Mills's work, what what would you point them to? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, The Racial Contract is a classic, 1997. Um, I suspect many listeners are probably familiar with that. Um, you can't go wrong starting with The Racial Contract and his critique of um, and this is right, touching on this question of the history of philosophy, right? This is in part what Mills does in that text, right? Is is criticize uh, criticizes historical contract theorists um, for their neglect of questions of race and racism. Um, so the racial contract definitely another book of his that is near and dear to my heart is called From Class to Race. I have. I have it here. Let me double check. The, I want to get the subtitle because it's pretty good. From Class to Race, Essays in White Marxism and Black Radicalism. So for uh, those among the, the audience who are sympathetic to Marxism and critical theories of capitalism and so on, this is a really important text. Charles Mills actually um, wrote a dissertation on Marx and ideology. So he was more of a Marxist earlier on in his career. And then transition towards questions of race and racism, hence the title From Class to Race. So that book, I think, is an important introduction to his thought and the development of his thought over time. Um, and it's it's thought provoking. It uh, should convince many people who are sympathetic to Marx and Marxism and critical views of capitalism that if they're serious about opposing capitalism, then they need to oppose white supremacy. Or that, I think, as he put it provocatively somewhere in this book, that white Marxists should be should become black nationalists. <laughs> so that's one, that's, yeah, that's the second book of his that I would highly recommend. But I mean, yeah, he's done, yeah, I mean, pretty much, you can't really go wrong with anything. <laughs> right, he's right. Done. I'm, a, I'm a big fan, as you can tell. Uh, but yeah, so the racial contract and from class to race would be two, two great options. Excellent. Well, um, before we wrap up our conversation today, we've talked a lot about what you're thinking about and what you've read and are reading uh, as you uh, work on all these ideas. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're writing uh, this year while you're working here at the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. 
Sure. So I'm currently working on two articles, both uh, based on revised excerpts of dissertation chapters. Uh, the first article looks more closely at this question of why we need to understand white supremacy as a double-edged sword. And there I make a, sort of a practical or a political argument or a pragmatic argument um, where the fact is that in the United States today, significant majority of the white population endorses zero-sum beliefs about interracial political and economic relations in the United States. So they believe that relative political and economic gains for people of color must come at their expense. In addition to that, there's a worsening degree of what I call white precarity in this article. And that's perhaps best captured by uh, this idea of deaths of despair which uh, the economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton have developed in some detail, where the basic issue is that uh, the white U.S. population is suffering from an unprecedented uh, reversal of the mortality rate. So where the mortality rates have been declining over time, over recent decades, uh, there is now a reversal of that, and white U.S. Americans are dying at unprecedented rates. Um, so these zero-sum beliefs and these white precarity, I argue in this article, uh, pose significant challenges for efforts to combat racism through the lens of white privilege. They tend to uh, antagonize people who already hold zero-sum beliefs or and or who are subject to this white precarity. And so I developed this this point in that article where, you know, because of this, we really need to understand white supremacy as a double-edged sword. We need to talk about the ways in which uh, white supremacy has hurt many white people. And so many white people could benefit from anti-racist social change. And then the second article looks more closely at that idea of deaths of despair and uh, Anne Case and Angus Dean's book on the topic of that same title, Deaths of Despair and uh, the Limits of Capitalism, I believe they call it, um, where uh, it's an important book and they highlight some disturbing uh, trends uh, in terms of healthcare and economics and wage stagnation and so on, but they don't really flesh out the, the racial dimension enough. And so in that second article, I'm reading that book, uh, on that subject, deaths of despair, and drawing more of a direct connection with the history of white supremacy and thinking about these deaths of despair um, as in part a consequence of longstanding white support for uh, white supremacy. Um, so those are two articles. Um, what else? And then there is, um, I'm working on a review of Hemani Banerjee's recent book, The Ideological Condition. She's a Bengali-Canadian historical sociologist who's developed over the course of many years uh, a feminist anti-racist Marxism or historical materialism. So I'm reading that book and I'm working on a review of that, uh, which will come out in a Marx and Philosophy review of books in the spring. So those are the main 
uh, projects, the two articles really being the main projects, um, and then a book review, and then, of course, the job market. Right. <laughs> well, Sebastian, I'm so grateful for your taking the time to uh, talk to me about your work and your ideas, and uh, we're especially grateful to have you here with us at the Humanities Center all this year. Um, so thank you so much again. Oh, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you for having me here. And thank you to the Humanities Center and Texas Tech for the time and resources to develop this work. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Humanities Now. I'm grateful to Sebastian Ramirez for speaking with me about his work and all of the important contributions he's making to our anti-racism theme this year. We'll be taking a short hiatus for winter break, but we'll be back in February with more episodes. In the meantime, I encourage you to check out our show notes and look at some of the works Dr. Ramirez mentioned in his conversation with me. As always, many thanks to the Humanities Center staff, Gavin Stockard and Justin Hughes, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. Please join us again when we return in 2022, and we wish you a safe and restful new year.